Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We are beginning officially. It's here. It, it's here, a series <laughs> that we are calling Back to Basics. And uh, many of you are already aware that we're doing a read along. So, for those of you that don't know, go find your books, pause the podcast real quick, go find your book. <laughs> what a luxury. I know, just right? Just pause, pause it, it yeah. and go, go get your book if you know where it is. Um, and uh, there's going to be points throughout uh, when we're talking that I actually can refer to a specific page. So we really want this to be a true read-along. Um, and for all of you on social media that have been chatting with me about your excitement about this, I'm so excited too. I think that'll come across as we're talking today, um, just how invigorating it's been for me to revisit this and have you know years worth of experience with EMDR reading it as opposed to when I knew nothing about it and was reading it for the first time it's been uh fun to do that so um, so when you first said read along I honestly thought you were going to read (laughs) and they would read along with you I I could do that I think if any of you want that just send us an email there'd be some copyright issues issues. Audible would be pissed gotta get all technical Bridget well I just don't want to get sued does Audible have it they do okay that's good to know go get it on Audible if you want a literal read along I love Audible so I can plug for them or maybe Kindle Live there, there's a there, red there's a version, version somewhere. Okay. We'll yeah. go find it if you like the bedtime story experience. Yeah. So. Yes. <laughs> That's true. I was ready to just cozy I up know. and have you, you, read got to your, me. you got your blanket on and everything. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> before we get into the nitty gritty of you know page one, chapter one, we're not exactly going to do that, but <laughs> I'd <Forward>. love to. <laughs> I don't need to go. No, I'm just no. <laughs> um, I did just want to just talk with you guys about. Um, the origin story of EMDR, because in the book, that's actually where Shapiro begins, um, is starting with a story about how all of this began. And in EMDR basic training, most of us are exposed to the walk in the park, the walk down the path story. Um, but there's really a lot more to it. So, oh my gosh, <laughs> so much. Well, you will go ahead, Bridget. Well, well, I just think that's one of the points that we were talking about before we started recording is that I remember in basic training, that was sort of the way the story began mm-hmm. was, oh, just one day, mm-hmm. many years ago, <laughs> Francine was on a walk, a leisurely stroll uh-huh. through the woods uh-huh. and noticed, you know, and that's like how it just like came to her. Yeah. But I think that decontextualizes the origin of EMDR as truly a modality that is building an evidence-based reputation Mm -hmm. and there's just a massive amount of academic rigor and research that goes into why are you laughing at me 
Because I'm, I'm going to tell a story about William Shatner in just a minute, and, and it's going to be funny, but you really need to finish your thought before <laughs> oh, I do that. Well, Otherwise, it's going to just derail No one's going to listen to what I'm going to say <laughs> in these next moments. Just like, shut up, Bridget. Let Melissa <laughs> no, tell the I'm Shatner story. story. No, I'm not Tell the story. No. I'll come back. I'll okay, book well, in I it. Think, okay, you are going to be able to book in this. I will. So if you guys don't know what the James Webb telescope is, you should. And you need to go look just at the pictures. Google it. Go- Google it, right? So... <laughs> Jen, not right now. What are you doing? I mean, oh, yeah. Just kidding. So rude. Just kidding. Um, so most people have at least seen on Facebook or somewhere recently that William Shatner went to space, right? Did you guys know this? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody knows this. William Shatner went to space. And what a fun story that makes that William Shatner went to space. And he had this quite like illuminating experience and then like wrote a bunch about it. I think he wrote a book about it. There's Mm -hmm. documentaries because he's very compelling in the way that he talks about it. And there's sort of this um, interest in a non-science person, right? he's, He's not a scientist. He's not an astronaut. And yet there he is in space having this huge epiphany and telling us about it. And it makes us feel close to it in some way, right? So here's my point <laughs> and how this really connects to EMDR. Behind William Shatner and his you know, phenomenal space experience and his ability to share that with all of us was hundreds of thousands of individuals. Mm. Yeah. And you know, just in the creation and the launching of something like that, this goes back to the James Webb Telescope. I think it was over a hundred thousand engineers and scientists and astrophysicists worked to do this over something like nine, twelve, twenty different countries. I don't yeah. remember that number well. Just an obscene amount of behind-the-scenes academic rigorous work. work that William Shatner didn't say anything about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just talked about this epiphany that he had. Because that's what compels us, and that's what moves us. The equations behind how in the world does the James Webb Telescope manage to take a picture of a nebula, we're less interested in that because it doesn't move us emotionally. Some of us. Some, that's a really good clarification, Five. Yes, because um, I, I get teary-eyed about that I know, stuff. no, it's beautiful. Um, so that's my point, yeah. that in the MDR story, Francine Shapiro is William Shatner. Right? <laughs> I want to see a t-shirt so bad. <laughs> I just we have someone who can do that. <laughs> yes. We'll make a t-shirt. Francine is in the R's William, William Shatner. Shatner. No, it's just... And, and, yeah. okay, okay, well, this went a direction I didn't mean it to. But that's why I was giggling, because I was thinking about everyone is aware of Shatner, and they don't even think about all of the scientists, all of the other humans, yeah. all of the effort, all of the hours that went in to getting to the point where this one human could have this one really important epiphany mm. that would then impact hundreds of thousands, if not more people, um, in this just shattering moment of illumination. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking about. Yes, <laughs> I love that. And honestly, I mean, I don't want to invalidate the excitement around EMDR as a modality at yeah. all. Like, of course, it has incredible power and amazing opportunity in very diverse populations all throughout the world and this commentary for me is in no way trying to like say that's not important what's important Mm -hmm. is the research like that's that's not it at all but you know francine as a psychologist was coming at this from a research methods perspective and did have a deep appreciation for a lot of the work that had come before her but that isn't stuff we talk about in the trainings but i think and as we're going to cover in this episode 
when you start to look at some of the puzzle pieces that she was considering, it makes total sense why AIP and the modality of bilateral stimulation, the specific target sequencing, the protocols, the scripts, why all of that came together. Yeah. Um, so that, that was the point of my comment. <laughs> Sorry to derail us. That's great. <laughs> I think in our, I'm remembering back to our like episode a long time ago when she had passed away yeah. and we did an episode kind of just honoring her and her like story mm-hmm. I learned so much of like at that point in time she was not deep into her mm-hmm. uh, profession as a psychologist she had been like a literature teacher yeah. and all of these other things so to hear that story and the the way it does emotionally move people and like capture this interest and excitement and the aha mm-hmm. that people love to have about EMDR. But then to say, then there's this huge gap that we don't talk about a basic training. There's like the day of the walk, but then she dives deep into mm-hmm. learning and researching and writing. The protocol wasn't even a thing when the walk in the park happened. Yeah. Her system was doing its natural process mm-hmm with the information she had gotten that day and she just happened to notice it and say, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. And then went to the books and said, this is being talked about. Yeah. Let's put it in a form where people can have this experience very intentionally and acutely so that it's not just, if we can't do it organically, how do we help create Mm -hmm. that processing? Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, I like to imagine um, her as the human being that has that experience and then begins the research process, which we have to remember that in those days, you know, Google Scholar was not a thing, mm-hmm. right? So research was quite an event um, in a way that it is not today. And yeah, you had um, to have physical publications. Physical publications. You had to like go to a place that isn't your computer home, <laughs> home computer. <laughs> um, and so, you know, imagining her following her curiosity and coming from a background where she would probably even struggled to know what keywords to search, right? Just well, you have to on, ask a research librarian. Which she probably did. You, that's, you know, you had to. Like, And and would, would she ask a librarian or did she go ask other other psychologists first? Like how, yeah. did, how did she even figure out how to start piecing this together? That, that part, she didn't tell that bit of the story. Yeah. From what I hear in the field of like, she consulted with so, so many, many people. brilliant yeah. minds. Yeah. And I know like- So that's being on the phone? Yeah. That's yes. writing- Writing letters, with, yeah. yes, like traveling to go see, yeah. yes. eventually emails, but right. you know, not very no, early. Not back yeah. in the seventies, no, no, like, no. yeah. we need someone to like associate it with. But yeah. there's so much more than Francine's brilliance in yes. this. There yes. are like hundreds of people's mm-hmm. yeah. wisdom and knowledge and experience built yeah. into this. I remember Jeez. just a titan of the publishing world we don't have to get into this but just there's a beautiful um story about getting manuscripts in the mail from friends like this is a paper i'm working on and i want you to read it Mm -hmm. and just like let me know like Mm -hmm. that was the peer review process Mm -hmm. (laughs) for before prior you know prior to submitting to editor for publication you just get a manila envelope and put your manuscript in it with your notes, <laughs> like and like, and you send, send it to it a person, one copy at a time. And like, <laughs> you know, yes, one copy at a time. Yeah. I just love that. Uh-huh. Like, there's just oh, so much beauty in there. There's some romanticism, although oh. I, I still prefer. I, I got to say, I prefer our way now. Oh, 100%. <laughs> my, I would well, be, we have access. I'm so impatient. I would be like, no, where's no, the information? That's like, right. I can't handle it. Can you just email it to me? Yeah, but 
so so I think the one of the things that uh, we're highlighting and, and would like to highlight is really broadening the the origin story of EMDR to begin to include or really continue to include all of the contributing forces that were present. Um, one of the ones that I think is certainly in people's awareness, but maybe could use some deepening and nuancing is that, you know, because of when she was doing this, the first keyword that a librarian probably mentioned to her um, and the, the first concepts that she encountered would have been around exposure therapies, desensitization. Yeah. How do we achieve that? Is that what was going on? Deconditioning, De reconditioning. All, all of that. Yeah. And so um, that illuminates why the the name EMDR was not the first name. It was yeah. EMD, right? Um, eye movement desensitization was the first name that she gave it. And it's because that's where the research took her at yeah. first. And so in the in the progression of even the name, because she went from not knowing what it was to calling it EMD, to calling it EMDR, to then saying, I wouldn't have named it EMDR. I would have just called it reprocessing therapy. Yeah. She would have just dropped that, uh, the E, movement. the M, and the D. Just imagine yeah. how much easier our lives would, would be. be. <laughs> <laughs> the tongue twisting and, and the slurring. Uh, you and know. the like, <laughs> and apologizing my... for the mouthful, like... <laughs> Every time we right. say eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, we have to be like, I'm sorry, that was a mouthful. It's EMDR. And yeah, and, and let me explain that to you, right? Yeah. Or, or my poor partner who will forever call it EDMR. Like, EDMR. It, it's just going to happen. And, and I'm, no, I don't. Everyone. Every, yeah, no. Electronic dance music. <laughs> That's replayed. what we do for a living. I have a podcast about electronic EDMR. dance music. Yeah. EDMR. That's a great podcast, cool. I'm sure. Um, so point being, I think just in observing the progression of the name, what we're actually witnessing in that is the progression of her research process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it began by referencing what was already in the field, and that led her to EMD. The E and the M was her experience, and then the D was because that's where the field was. And as the research with the, the protocol that she created progressed, that's when the R appeared. And then as um, the research progressed even further and there was more application and more experience, that's when she came to this realization that desensitization is hardly the point. In fact, it is mm -hmm. in chapter one that, she, that she, she says it's not about desensitization. It's just not the most important part. That's not what we're trying to achieve. We are looking for that full reprocessing. And so from there, she goes into, and this is AIP and why AIP is so important. And so she spends a majority of chapter one uh, making her case for AIP and why looking at the past is so important and mm -hmm. why reprocessing is the point and not desensitization. So for me, part of what I took from that is we're not looking to reduce anxiety and distress. That is simply one measurement. Um, we are looking for that reprocessing effect where the memory is now stored and accessed differently than it was before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you guys take from all that? Oh, so much that I, there's so many things coming into my mind. The recontextualizing of all of this feels incredibly supportive mm -hmm. to how we talk about EMDR, like talk about the shifts and the expansiveness of it and the flexibility of it. Um, and so I, I, I like being able to connect Francine with that because yeah. there's this weird tension of, gosh, if we stray from the certain protocol, somehow we're abandoning mm. EMDR mm. and we're, you know, not recognizing it for what it is. But she was really talking this way in the beginning. Yes. And I think it's been through research, through 
um, the mass production of EMDR as a far really as good phrase. sending out how many therapists can we create, how many consultants, how many trainers, how do we mass produce and mm. turn this into this huge business and <laughs> just, just say it like it yep. is Jen <laughs> truth teller <laughs> really and I think it's been morphed so much through yeah. that process that people don't even know what the real thing looked like yeah yeah well and I I think that uh one of the things it's such a tension because on one hand I really understand the desire the motivation the reasoning um behind scripting this mm-hmm. And putting it in a form that was reproducible. And, you know, in a minute we're going to talk about one of the sources that she drew that from. Um, And I think it illuminates a lot of her diligence in the way that she put it together, why she did what she did. Um, But in that same article, there is this phrase that is just quite enrapturing to me where the author says, something along the lines of it all comes down to the artist therapist. And he uses that phrase artist dash therapist. And so I have this feeling that when Francine encountered that phrase, she might have felt a bit of trepidation about how do you trust that a therapist is always going to know how to artistically maneuver their way through this process. Mm what a kindness in the idea of could we give somebody a script to follow (laughs) that would take the burden off of them to always know what to do and know how to um, navigate the subtleties. Could we make it more approachable? And that's potentially where the desire for a script came from is to make it more accessible. Yeah. And again, sorry to bring back history again, but the, you know, this podcast has given us opportunity to speak to people that we wouldn't have gotten to speak to yeah. otherwise and gotten to talk to people who were in like the original circle. They were there. They the, were there. The original like 30 some yes, people. Even yeah. 13 at first, which was like, that was the just sharing of the very same way that we do with our close friends at Beyond. of like, this is amazing. Yeah. Let's practice this together. And what do you think about this? And I remember listening to someone who said, we all, there was a moment that night that we all looked at each other and knew this is the cure to PTSD. Mm-hmm. This will do it. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, think about the history and the time that this discovery was made. That was a crisis mm-hmm. facing yes. so many people where trauma was really in the rediscovery process that this is an epidemic. Yeah. Trauma is everywhere you know all these mental disorders traumas at the root of this and we through emd can desensitize desensitize people to their triggers to their their suffering yes Yes. people are sleeping people are off drugs people are doing all Mm -hmm. these things with adaptive potential um, that they don't have to kill themselves trying to survive Mm -hmm. and that to me is where i think we can really empathize with the need to create scripts, the yes. need to protocolize, because like if that's what's on the line, yeah. if we're believing that this is the cure to PTSD type one, mm-hmm. let's manufacture this thing. Like mm-hmm. let's get it to every person that could that has a breath, mm-hmm. you know. And that to the heart behind the mass production, starting from that. I mean, many speeches even being talked about of Francine saying like, "Why do more people not have this? Stop holding it. Like share it." Like the mass production of it coming first from that heart of like, we have something really special that Mm -hmm. could start to reduce suffering 
And I think too, with what you're sharing, Melissa, the need to, we need scripts, we need protocol protocols for research because then we can get funding. It can yep. be recognized. Yes. Insurances will pay for it. Taken like, legitimately, you know, legitimately by the APA yes. and by all of these really heavy hitting editorial voices. So everything had to be standardized and mm-hmm. a protocol around it. And then the scripts to say, this gets people what they, at least what they need to be able to take that first step into offering it. I don't think it was ever meant to say the artist should go away and it should just be a replication. But let's start with replicating what we can and then bring in our artistic flair from yeah. there. Well, and I, I don't know that this is true because we can't ask her. But I think given what I know and, and you know, Bridger, your reference to those original conversations with a really intimate group of psychotherapists, those individuals were traumatologist and had been for decades. Yeah. You know, she sought out people that really knew what they were doing. Knew the population, yes. had things that worked. Yes. Yeah. And I, so I do wonder, and I have this feeling of the basic protocol, the idea was if you add this specific protocol to all of your ability um, as a trauma therapist, it will make the work more efficient. Yeah. And that's true. One of the, yeah, another conversation, just to reference, was talking about the script creation, and they, they said, those are just some of the things we were generally saying more often yeah. than not. Yeah. Like, that's where the scripts came from. We just found ourselves saying these things. That's how every script comes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is what I say. I'll write yeah. it down. Yeah, like that group that, that was practicing. That seems to work. Yeah, yeah, like this does well. This is kind of clunky. Let's yeah. change it here. Yeah. But then that creates the effect. It moves the script along. Mm-hmm. The therapeutic session progresses, and we can accomplish our target sequencing. Like, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? But just to that relational point, yes. it was just what they found themselves saying mm-hmm. more often than not. And And so those phrases were acquired and embodied by therapists that were practicing um, for, for decades, for years, and had vast amount of experiences in treating the complexities of trauma presentations. Yeah. And you you see um, kind of underneath the, the language and the way that Francine speaks about it, kind of an assumption that that is true for therapists. Mm. Um, it's, you know, in page two of the book, she, she makes the comment about, well, the basic protocol is the basic one, but you will need other protocols. Like this is not the only one. It's on page two that she immediately references. There are other things that you're going to have to do. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the first 30 pages, there's about three or four references, um, to, oh yeah. And you'll need to be treating developmental deficits, which this just like this massive phrase, right? Oh yeah. Don't forget that. <laughs> and you'll need to treat the developmental deficits. But there at at least at this point of the book, there's no um description of what that process is. So there's this assumption that the average therapist is going to number one, know what that means, be able to identify them, know how to treat them, and then know the timing of when to actually use the basic protocol after they have done so. That's massive. Like huge, and and one of the areas that a lot I of think, assumptions, tons of assumptions, but given who the original people were, I understand why those were made. Yeah, when you have decades of experience, you're like, yeah, yeah, and and you you may not even be able to articulate that that's what you're doing, yeah, because it, it's so embodied and natural to you. Um, so I I think that it illuminates part of the maturation process of EMDR and its struggle points. Yeah, when it hasn't gone well. Um, is when we have fallen prey to that assumption 
that the average therapist feels ready and equipped to identify and treat um, developmental deficits of all kinds and know that the basic protocol is not appropriate um, at every point in the journey because those developmental deficits not only will get in the way but can potentially um, make the basic protocol inappropriate and detrimental in some cases, and we all know those stories. Um, So I'm just curious, like, when you guys encounter that, like, this early in the story of EMDR, what does that mean for us as therapists today? Like, where do we go with that? There's so many layers to me. Like, I love how you're emphasizing that does, that means that the basic protocol is not appropriate. What you're not saying is that means that EMDR right. isn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I think we mix that up a lot. Like, okay, mm-hmm. if, if they're not already at this point, then EMDR is not a good fit. What we've been able to discover is that we can use EMDR outside of the basic protocol mm-hmm. to be what treats those developmental deficits. Like we can lean into resourcing, which we'll talk so much more mm-hmm. about that and have in many other areas. But we can start to explore like what does it mean to utilize this beautiful uh, theory and technique and modality to actually get them to that place where their systems can process trauma in an adaptive manner. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think we've got to be looking at um, who are we teaching this to? Are we teaching tenured (laughs) clinicians, people who've been doing this for decades? Or are we teaching people straight out of grad school? And are we teaching people who, you know, they are have one small area of experience in therapy and we have to modify how we're teaching it based on who's our audience? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't want to not include in this conversation some kind of, I don't know, guidance <laughs> about how to make those determinations for yourself because I'm sort of imagining that everybody listening to this is like, well, gee, do I know how to do that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do I know what that really means? Or thinking about, um, you know, ways that you do and don't. And um, at least a beginning of an answer to me, I was really excited to actually find it in one of the very original sources that Francine utilized to create the protocol. Um, and that's part of why the basic protocol without any additions or changes may not be appropriate, but the core of EMDR still is. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I'm referencing, uh, for those of you that are doing the read-along, please turn to page 12 (laughs) and near the bottom. (laughs) I'm going to have way too much fun with this. So near the bottom, there's this um, (laughs) sentence where she's talking about a couple of sources that she looked at very early on. And I want to focus on the one by Lang, Peter Lang. Uh, it's an article from 1997. And he was researching the, sorry, 1977. Thank you for the that look, was, Bridger. <laughs> that was unconscious, but that is what I was reacting to. I know, I know, I, I got it. That's I got crazy. it. 1977. Um, so long time ago in terms of uh, when she was doing her research and then certainly to now. So, so this was um, early in uh, the, the research and desensitization, but Peter Lang was looking at the use of imagery specifically around evoking material for therapeutic purposes and research purposes to try to promote change. So, you know, this is when they were looking at desensitization and he, I think that what motivated it is what has to happen in exposure therapies, in other kinds of um, desensitization therapies for it to work. Like, what do we need to make sure um, happens and what kind of stimuli 
is best suited to produce that. So as you read through the article, um, and I think you can find it on Google Scholar. So if you guys want to. I've been doing. You got it? I've been doing something illegal. Oh, are you sharing it? I'm going to. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It is a little illegal. But it's not our site that hosts it. Oh, okay. So that's the oh. thing. Yeah. SciHub is a thing. We, we are just sharing that someone else is doing something no. illegal. Okay. Don't. I'm got just it. like pointing to the, they're over there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just found it here. It's this link. Okay. Stumble it. Cross yeah. it. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Oh, I've know. never even done this before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's information, mm-hmm. so you should have access to it. I agree. Um, yes, but I will include it. Okay. Um, there's three articles that I will include. Yes, yeah. Um, so, so this one in particular is the Peter Lang from 1977 looking at imagery. And what I want to highlight about that article is, number one, you can really see as she's putting together the protocol where she pulls these specific elements out. Uh, for instance, you know, he he has a whole initial section where he's talking about the power of an image mm. to evoke and the difference between an actual image versus an imagined, an internally imagined image. And his research showed that there's no difference, that uh, evocation and activation of uh, the system can happen with an imaginational image. Um, and so you you see the, the research behind the elements of phase three in that worksheet that we all use and those questions that we ask. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I fa- find really interesting because now we have new information because neuroscience has progressed um, is the importance of what has to be included in order for an activation to really be what we need it to be in order for change to occur. And Lang's conclusion is that in order for activation to be useful in a therapeutic sense, the person has to be feeling it. And he nuances what that means. And we see that in the EMDR protocol. He says they have to be feeling it emotionally. There has to be an emotional response. Otherwise, we're not going to see a change effect. Understood viscerally. Well, that's interesting because he nuances that. Understood viscerally, but the the somatic, the physiological portion, they don't even have to be aware. Conscious. As long as it's present. Yeah. So he differentiates and say, says that it has to be physiologically measurable. Yeah. So they, you know, when they were doing this research, they, I'm sure, stuck little electrodes all over the person's body. <laughs> and they could see that their heart rate went up. So regardless of if the participant was aware that they were now breathing heavier and their heart rate was elevated and their skin was flushing, they could tell that they were activated. Yeah. And so as therapists, how useful is that? You know, that's super informational to us to realize the person has to be having an emotional response and that part they do need to be aware of they need to be aware that this has some emotional relevance to them and then their body has to be feeling it but we might be able to visually observe that their body is reacting without them having full consciousness and awareness of it so this might be that suddenly i notice a flushing of skin or you know they're tapping their foot really hard or they're picking at their nails a whole lot yeah gritting their teeth yeah, whatever yeah maybe they're not super conscious of that but we see that it's happening and you know most people that have listened or to really any time that i talk i find myself saying a lot that If they're feeling it, then we can process it. And this is the research that bears it out. Um, And in in the original research, they did talk about the thought component, the cognitive component, but they still said the cognition doesn't matter if they're not feeling it and they're not having a physiological reaction. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, 
and this is also just a window into the things that I nerd out on, but common reference. So when you talked about this article from Lang, there's another one that you're going to talk about from Bauer. Mm -hmm. There's a common reference between those two articles and Francine's Mm. work in a person named Joseph Wolf, W-O-L-P-E, who developed in their doctoral thesis in 1948, the subjective units of distress scale. And their thesis was on the relationship between condition responses and neuroses. If you think about that, mm-hmm. when you think about AIP, I've always said that guy's name Wolpe. So I like yeah, your version way better. <laughs> yeah, I think it would. Be. I always felt weird saying it. So okay, yeah. yeah, you're probably right. But um, yeah, that's just an interesting lineage. So yeah. especially research back then, when you find common reference like that, this is where you see the entire mm-hmm. outline of the assessment. You know, stages yeah. three, four, five, like all the way up. You see where all of these themes are coming together. With yeah. what are the cognitions? What are the subjective units of distress for emotion? Is that felt? Is it conscious? How do we then begin to work with it? Right. And that's the academic conversation that was happening yes, at that time. to support mm-hmm. yes. the development of the modality. Yeah, they, they were in communication with each other, if not literally you know, outside of their articles that they were publishing, um, at least in the form of their publications. Yeah. They were reading what each other was doing, and, and that's how this body of research uh, you know, propelled itself forward. Yeah. And what is fascinating is that we have to remember that that you know progression has not stopped in the intervening years. There has been a tremendous amount of work um, outside of the EMDR community to continue to understand the information processing process um, that is the underpinning of everything that we do in therapy. Yeah. And if we're not paying attention to the progression of the research, we don't know how to adapt and evolve with the new information that's coming. Um, and you know that's something that we talk about a lot of beyond is making sure that we're continuing to keep up with with the conversation. And in SIP, we talk a lot about the information processing loop and how relevant it is to understand that step by step process that's happening in our nervous system all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to go deeper on that, but that would take us, I think, out of the... That might be a whole separate episode. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. My my mind is just going to, with it being a standardized protocol based on the research that was and then how much it has evolved, mm-hmm. how rigidly will the field try to stick to and has it tried to stick to what was without flexibility and updating what we know now. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to spin up too much on this, but I think that's where you see the a present struggle of leadership emerging from yeah. Yeah. because different modalities are being developed. EMDR 2.0 is a great conversation exactly. to be started. Yeah. Like, how do we continue to build an EMDR community when there are positions held very rigidly yeah. about fidelity looking a certain way? That's to me where you're you're going to start making enemies of one another because we believe there should be fidelity to this original protocol as I understand it, but I present it in my leadership and advocacy as mm-hmm. you know being closed off to other ideas mm-hmm. or ways of bringing in creative resources or additional scripts or whatever. We have or to dispensing with scripts almost altogether. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's all kinds of ways that people are working with this, and I think that's one of the challenges that faces the new generation of leaders yes. in the EMDR community. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do with 
that reality. Yeah. Well, and, and to me, like, it has to go back to utility, right? And remembering that there there is a difference between research and praxis. And one must guide the other. Like, when they're not talking to each other is when we run into to struggle. And I, I do think that in the EMDR community, it's sort of like that has been done pretty well, but then also there's some areas where it really hasn't been. And I think one of the the reasons why we haven't done great <laughs> in understanding the nuances of when scripts are needed and not is because we haven't really looked deeply at what the script is really trying to do. Like, what is the point of it? Because if we understand the point... And to me, that necessitates tracking the lineage of the script and really understanding, like, why did Francine include what she did? Why is that question there? Why do we ask the questions in the order that we ask them? Yeah. Right? Like, why is the cognition first and the body last? Because the body is the thing that matters most, right? You know, it's, it's subtle things like that, that if we track the lineage of the script, then suddenly we get to embody the script rather than read the script which means when it comes time to make an adaptation, I confidently and clearly know when a tweak is necessary, when just a straight, you know, real black and white reading of the script will do versus when it's time to forget the script altogether. Mm-hmm. And all, all three of those things, I believe, are essential to be that artist therapist with EMDR that, you know, the very original research suggested we have to be in order mm-hmm. to do this work effectively. Yeah. I feel like that's such an, as you're describing that, that is the emphasis of our certification program. Yeah. Like, and our refresh, like however you come at it or whatever your goal is to go through and say, let's explore the why behind all of this Mm -hmm. so that one, we can understand it on a fundamental level, not just to replicate what someone told us to do and just to like mimic another's approach, but to know why it works here and then why it doesn't and how to become an artist in the process, how to become very confident in expanding outside of a script and a standard protocol and being very creative in it. So this, this is a very tiny tangent and I won't stay here very long, but there's this chunk of research and writing, um, by a, a writer named Habermas, which that's a fun name to say. Um, and I can't remember the title of this article cause it's been a minute, but he goes on this long exposition about how therapy must be a hermeneutic process, mm. um, where the, you know, the therapist and the client are creating art together. Mm. And in our case, our art, what we are creating is meaning. And, you know, a hermeneutic process is a, a evolving meaning making process where you encounter material and you discover um, its meaning. And it, it has this feeling of aliveness to it, at least it should. <laughs> um, and it's very dynamic. It's not this stagnant, rigid thing. And so reconceptualizing and recasting ourselves as collaborative artists with her clients just as something really interesting um, in terms of our stance and the way that we approach this work. And if we are artists, then we want to know how to break the rules, right? Um, the, the whole point of learning the rules is to masterfully bend them and break them when that is what the moment calls for. Um, and to me, that feels really enlivening and 
all of my clinical experience says those are the best sessions. Mm-hmm. When I don't feel stuck, when I feel free to be spontaneous and creative and responsive, um, those are the sessions that it's like, whoo, it feels like magic just happened. Mm. Um, and, and a kind of magic that I was really a part of. There's a magical session where I felt like a button pusher. That's real too. But then there's a magical session where we both come out of it feeling like we just did something together that's quite extraordinary. Yeah. And that's why I still love EMDR. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's the part that's like, I'm still devoted to it. Not not so much to the script, but to the the roots of it and the, the way of it. Um, I still feel tremendous devotion to working in that way because of how it guides that process mm. effectively. Mm. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> I mean, I completely agree. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking about the the reading mm-hmm. and how the intention of that first chapter, you know, even just entitled background, like, <laughs> you know, there's so much there that's unsaid and really to do a thorough reading of those, uh, of those references, mm-hmm. you know, this is something that that academics I don't think are recognized well enough for that Mm -hmm. there's such a long breadcrumb trail that comes before any word is written. And I I think to do the academic or the scholar or the author justice would be to like familiarize yourself with those. They don't say them for no reason. Mm -hmm. It's not just stuff that's included just to say like, I know what I'm talking about. It's let me share, at least this is how I understand it. Like Mm -hmm. let me share what I was spending so much of my time with mm-hmm. before I came to the idea that I just wrote down, like, yeah. here, mm-hmm. what do you make of this? Mm-hmm. And to look at those references, you know, those are some titans of the field and some obscure references as well that aren't really talked about Which a shows lot. the depth of her yes. work. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. And again, research is collaborative whether or not you know it. Yeah. So whether those are references that just came to her through friends that are talking about this or mm-hmm. through other publications or ones that she was intimately poring over as like, I need to understand Lang's writing or Bauer's work or whatever. But to me, the take home message for that first chapter is that we are taking part in a story that's ongoing, Mm -hmm. that has a lot of deep roots in the very foundation of our field. Mm -hmm. And that to me is what excites me about EMDR. EMDR is not done. No. (laughs) To recognize all of this conversation is not a way to take away from what Francine Shapiro did, mm-hmm. but to highlight how much. To contextualize it. Contextualize yeah. it. And then to say her work was like, we use this a lot with our SIP training, but it was to synthesize this information yeah. and find a way to package it and deliver it where other people could like receive it. Yeah. And I think to the extent of her research and the study and everything that came before her to honor that and then to honor what she did in making sense of it in a way that it could become what it is today. Yeah. It's just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. It gives me chills. Me too. Yeah. 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 And and if your interest is totally piqued by this article the way that mine was, um, and then are curious in the connection to like where is the research now, 
Um, I am going to do a little two-hour seminar. So if you're not part of Mighty Networks, if you don't know what that is, please go join because that's where all the fun stuff happens. (laughs) Just the community there is so freaking neat. Um, And if you know Bridger will post that with show notes, and it's on our website under the Four Therapist tab, so you can find it there as well. But we periodically do these little short seminars um, for CEs. Um, around topics that we're just excited about and passionate about. And I'm super excited about this one. So I'm going to do a little two-hour seminar around uh, Peter Lang's article and then connecting it to another piece of research that uh, comes out of um, a huge collaborative article around interoception and the neurobiology of interoception and how much they're mirrors to each other. It Mm -hmm. feels to me like bookends of a long uh, arc of research and it is so relevant for the work that we do we use that reference in sip um so i'm excited to talk about that so uh get on mighty networks and you'll see all of the information about there i'll also post it on facebook so hopefully you guys will run into it somewhere Mm -hmm. i was just thinking with mighty networks uh I listen to other podcasts and sometimes I'm like, I wish I could just like hang out and talk to these people because I listen to them (laughs) for hours. So if any of you have that feeling like Mighty Networks, you actually can. (laughs) We're on there all the time. Come hang out with us. Chatting. I will direct message you on there. (laughs) Yeah. Live events, uh, consultation calls with Drop In With Beyond. Like we are on there a lot. Mm -hmm. So come hang out with us. Totally. Yeah, we have free events, paid events, and everything in between on there. So you can have have us to the degree that you desire us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What do, what do we actually tell people to look for in that? It's not Mighty Networks. Oh, it's, yeah, go ahead. What's the thing? Beyondhealingcommunity.com. Okay, yeah. thank Very you. simple. Mm-hmm. We should probably start yeah. saying it that way. That's I say it that way. I know you do. I don't. <laughs> You're more efficient than, Continuity. <laughs> than us. Continuity. There's got to be some unity. Beyondhealingcommunity.com. Beyondhealingcommunity.com. That's right. Come Beyondhealingcommunity.com. <laughs> How many times should I say it? Maybe it'll get in if you just the unconscious. So in reference to the read-along, I suggested that people read up to page 30. Yeah. And so um, we have officially made it through page 12. Well, I think... (laughs) Which doesn't surprise me at all. Adaptive information processing. Yes. If we just want to like end it there just with time. Mm -hmm. um, That I think is a great, again, a great segue into what information processing means and why that was so captivating in providing a theoretical structure for EMDR. And again, those references really piece together an incredible breadcrumb trail of leading straight to (laughs) EMDR. You do a research lineage walkthrough of the information processing theory? You want to do it now? No, like, okay. no. I was gonna say because like <laughs> wow. I, we could stumble through it. But no, no, no. I mean, like, yeah, what, I mean, what, could we do that? Because I would that want to do that. Incredible. I know, doesn't it? Will you? Do I would that? love to hear that personally. <laughs> I know everybody else would too. Oh. It's so relevant because it is the um, the home of AIP. You know, AIP is embedded in that lineage. And if you so guys are ready. I'm so ready. We Let's do that next episode. A guest for that. Caleb Boston. Caleb Boston would be CB? an excellent, an excellent guest for that. He's never been a guest on notice that I don't think. Is that true? I well, we're you back, hear him we're every back time you that. start an episode because he is you that. Do. But sweet, he isn't on the episode. Grounding voice. And I think he should be, be so here. fun to have him as what a guest on the episode. We just got to talk together. What if Jen and I could listen to you and Caleb talk about the research lineage of information processing? We can just ask questions and uh, embed AIP within that arc of research. That's incredible. Do that? Yeah, let's do that. 
Okay. I'm down. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm texting Caleb. Is this right the now. next episode yes. or do we have to wait? No, We're no. We're going to see I where Caleb's we, schedule's at. Well, that, that's but, fair. Okay. Hopefully it'll be next hopefully. episode or, or very, very soon. And Fingers it is crossed. relevant to, to read from page 12 to 30. Yeah. Um, and you could read a little bit beyond from there. Um, Francine gives an example session and kind of breaks it down and is pointing out the elements of both AIP and the protocol within that. Um, so I think that uh, that would prepare you really well to listen to this conversation with a lot of good context. <laughs> and then Bridger and Caleb will blow our minds with Just for the more. image for the listeners. Bridger is so jacked right now. I'm His trying. The amount of relishing that is, that is occurring. Just hold it. Pure joy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Caleb's going to be here. And yes. Caleb's going to be here. He's a, he's a special human. That's great. Which is a huge understatement. So, <sighs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and joining us on this very... Um, Brief. <laughs> deep. <laughs> That's what I would say. Uh, I was going to say deep journey into <laughs> the basic text. I would love to say that we're going to speed up. But that would not be true to the nature of our desire in reading through this. Um, if you want a faster experience, <laughs> I highly recommend EMDR Refresh to give you a, um, yeah, a, a faster overview of the protocols and, and uh, getting you ready to be in practice confidently. But this season and maybe the next one and maybe the next one, we'll see. Um, is let's, really, lose let's lose the controversy. Who cares yeah. about this? The, the point is we are going to do justice to <laughs> all of the juicy details that went into the creation of this book and of this, um, I was going to say lifestyle. That's a, that's not exactly what I meant to say, but maybe I do. Um, of the EMDR way. Yeah, let's put it with that way. audibly accessible information across time. Yes. doesn't matter the season. I don't no, know. No. We'll just be there. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast. <laughs>